Hey, and welcome to Full Proof Theology. My name is Chase Davis. It is good to be with you here today. I'm here with my friend Doug Ponder. Doug Ponder is out at Grimke Seminary in Virginia. Doug, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, glad to be here. Hey, I wanted to let you have a chance to kind of introduce. You've got a lot of stuff going on in your life, a lot of uh, great things going on. So I just wanted my audience to hear a little bit more about you, your background, maybe some education, family, church, all that kind of stuff. So why don't you share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, so, I, yeah, I grew up just south of Richmond, Virginia, where I live and uh, pastor now. Um, I uh, came to faith uh, at an uh, uh, early age, or at least I thought I did, uh, probably could regurgitate the facts of the gospel, uh, but uh, there wasn't an inner transformation of the heart until uh, much later in life. I actually was uh, confronted uh, on a, a Sunday morning after the two times I had been to church all year that year by a guy who has since become my best friend, a co-church planter, uh, seminary professor, uh, and that sort of thing. And he got in my face and was like, what are you doing with your life? Not a profound question, uh, but the Lord used that and his uh, sincerity and directness to start a friendship and a conversation that included reading books together and attending conferences together and a lot of debates together. And anyway, the Lord got a hold of my heart and uh, took some time to detox a little bit from the experience I had in Bible college, where I think I had gone there, maybe not as a Christian. And it's pretty bad to be a, a Bible major at Bible college when your heart's not in the right place. So, hey, you know what, though? You know what? When I read the story of the Puritans, and I, I read about the reformers in England, that was often the case at Emmanuel College. They would go, and then God would meet them in a profound way. So yeah. I think that's a beautiful story, and I think that's a really good thing. I mean, like, God put you in Bible college yeah. to save you, and what an awesome testimony to his grace for you. That's, it is. It's true. And so I, I tell everybody, I went into Bible college thinking I was going to be a pastor. I graduated thinking that's the last thing I ever wanted to do. And what changed between then and now was everything I was just telling you. And then I was slow to get back into seminary, uh, but I eventually got there on my friend's encouragement. And while we were there, uh, we, we lived in the same space. So I would hang out with him every day. We would debate and talk and dream and pray about what maybe we would do when we graduated. And the Lord laid it on our heart at that time because of the influence of a lot of people. But uh, guys like Mark Driscoll and, and many others who at the time were talking about the importance of a local church. And the importance of taking the gospel to people who uh, maybe not encounter it any other way. And so we saw an opportunity, uh, a need in, in inner city Richmond, uh, downtown, uh, center city, inner city areas uh, to take the good news of Jesus to places where people weren't being reached. And so that's what we did. And we graduated uh, from seminary together and then uh, started this church back in 2009. Um, things have been going great. Been there ever since. And uh, then I was a glutton for punishment, went back and got a THM. Uh, and then after that. Uh, decided to do a little more doctoral work. I'm wrapping that, that up now. And uh, uh, a couple years ago, we found ourselves in a unique place where we had uh, several men who had come to us for pastoral training and development, um, didn't want to uproot their life and move to another part of the country to do some kind of uh, traditional brick and mortar seminary, but also didn't want to do the only online thing. And so for several years, we had been training men in that way. We started doing it for other churches in our city, and then one thing led to another. Different pieces kind of came in place, and we decided to to do that and open it up for guys across the country. And so we started Grimke Seminary in 2020, the same year the pandemic hit. Uh, so that was that was wild. Uh, but the Lord's been good, yeah. man. The Lord's been really good. Uh, we've consistently grown every semester since then, and 
Uh, we got a little over 120 students this semester, which has been just amazing. That's great, man. That's so good. And we've got one of our worship pastors at the well uh, up in Longmont going there right now. So I've really enjoyed seeing him thrive and grow and uh, just share share ideas with him. That's been such a joy. And I'm so blessed. We're Our ministry is blessed by by y'all taking a step of faith, especially during that trying time. So so we're really thankful for that. Praise God. And um, and so you you've planted um, were you did you plant? As a Baptist, I just want to kind of dive on that real quick. You yeah. planted as a Baptist church confessionally, or was it just kind of non-denom? Yeah, it was Baptist, uh, Southern Baptist, and a partnership with the Acts 29 Network. We, uh, Brian, Brian Lachlan and I were research assistants uh, that uh, got connected with a guy named Tyler Jones, who was a pa- an Acts 29 pastor in Raleigh uh, early in the network, and J.D. Greer, who at the time was part of the Acts 29 Network. And I believe they were both, or at least one of them, were kind of like dually affiliated. Uh, Southern Baptist Acts 29. And there were a lot of things that we saw in their churches that we just it wasn't even on our radar. I don't even think we imagined that church could look different than the Baptist churches of our upbringing, which were sort of perfectly contextualized to the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, as if sure. as if things hadn't changed since then. And so right. it, it was helpful for us at that stage to see guys who had a, a lot in common with us theologically but we're uh, uh, seeking to implement that theology in ways that looked very different um, than what we, we had seen. You know, and when we went on to plant ourselves, we didn't do everything the exact same way that, that JD did or that Tyler did, but uh, we did learn a lot from them. And so uh, we, we were part of the Baptist uh, uh, denomination at that level, but then also part of the Acts 29 network at that level to uh, uh, basically for, for brotherhood and, and partnership uh, with missions and a high degree of like-mindedness. We found ourselves in a weird place where we had more in common with like a certain kind of Presbyterians and Anglicans than we right. did with Baptists. And so that, yeah. that extra layer of fellowship was helpful to us uh, because it helped us yeah. connect with guys that we had more in common with uh, than guys who just dunked, dunked people after their faith. Uh, and, and that was all we had in common with each other. Sure. You know what I mean? Do y'all remain? Yeah, for sure. Do y'all remain uh, in the Southern Baptist convention today? Yeah, for now. Um, yeah, for now. We'll 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 see. Yeah, you know, we'll see. They uh they seem to be working through yeah. a lot of things and uh for us all of our partnerships are always uh sort of a cost benefit analysis. We know who we are, we know what we believe. Uh, you know, we could easily jump on board with the denomination that affirms something like the 1689 London Baptist Confession. It wouldn't be difficult for us. Uh I just think that at this time in our life we are kind of assessing partnerships and asking uh is is what is asked of us uh, as beneficial as our, our belonging to that. And, and that will be true for, for any partnerships that we have across the board, uh, local level, national level, whatever. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of, a lot of changes going on based on affinity and all this stuff. And what that kind of a segue into what I want to talk about, and we're going to talk about, uh, kind of like, uh, practicing confession publicly as a church and then authenticity and that kind of thing. One thing I'm curious about for you guys, you planned in 2009, you know, it's kind of a, a high watermark during the kind of church planting boon of the early 2000s. You've got, you know, J.D. Greer, Eric Mason, Matt Chandler, Mark Driscoll, Darren Patrick, kind of these big names. And now a lot of things have happened since sure. then. So that's kind of cultural, not just culturally, but kind of in uh, particularly actually now. But, but then you've got culturally a lot has changed. And so I'm curious, you know, with your church plant today, with the churchy pastor, with your friend, how does it look different today than it did back in 2009? Like, cause here's, I'll, I'll give you a story for me. The best man at my wedding 
um, he was moving to Houston and I was like, Oh, you should look up at an actual church. And cause I, in my mind, I was like, it's all going to feel like either the village or something like that or Mars Hill. And he goes and it's like, he calls me that Sunday and he goes, man, they had candles and it was all dark. And it, he, what he, he was describing was a very like emergent church, yeah, you know, yeah. emerging church style of worship. So I'm just curious for you guys, how has your liturgy developed? How has your worship changed? maybe over the last, what, 14, 13 years since you've planted? Yeah, that's really good. Um, man, first couple of years, I think we were still getting some anger and some frustration out of our system. Uh, so there was a, a yeah. little bit of a reactionary tendency early on. I know that's a story for a lot of guys, but it was especially true for us. Uh, we were frustrated because we felt like there was uh, so much richness in the Bible and, 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 and theological conversations that we had been deprived of, uh, not only by, uh, uh, you know, um, otherwise faithful men who had uh, preached the good news of Jesus to us. Uh, and, and so certainly unendingly thankful for that, but there was so much more that we sort of felt like we had to figure out on our own. And, uh, so there was a lot of reactionary, uh, talk, even if we weren't explicitly, you know, naming names or, uh, systems or people or churches, I think, I think it came through in our tone and that's changed over time. Um, some other things that have changed in terms of like what we would do differently. Uh, certainly a lot of the talk about, you know, Aaron Wren's framework of positive, negative, neutral world. If you, if you look at the high watermark of church planting, missional church planting, especially in big cities, a lot of that was in that time when we planted. And we planted mm -hmm. with a self-consciously neutral world strategy, even though nobody was using the label back then. It's exactly, right. exactly what we were doing. We started, we, ha we had a huge, um, uh, art gallery and and ministry uh, that we thought would be a wonderful way of you know bringing people in uh, to have conversations and neutral spaces about meaning and beauty and we still have that gallery but even over time some of its function and and, and its uh, effectiveness have shifted so we, we probably yeah. saw 20 30 people who, who got connected with the church came to faith through that ministry early on and I bet that that you could count on one hand, uh, maybe since 2015, the number of people. You, and, and that wasn't the only reason we ever did it. It wasn't like everything was a means to evangelism. I think Jesus is Lord. Sure. Jesus is Lord of truth. He's Lord of beauty. He's Lord of morality and justice. And, and we wanted to assert that and demonstrate that. And I still think there's value in that. But I think we would approach it with different expectations. Same when it comes to the way that we talk on Sunday mornings. Uh, we just have a higher... Yeah degree of awareness of the stakes for some of the people in our co in our congregation that are different now than they were pre say Obergefell uh, 2015. Mm -hmm. It was the case when we planted that we might have talked a lot more about um, things we would have said stuff like you know the gospel religion is us versus them but the gospel is us versus sin something like that. That's clever. Yeah, it's not though. <laughs> it sounded clever, right? And it sounds. Clever. It works really well until you read the Psalms. Yeah, uh, yep. which is full of us versus them language, or even just the Gospels. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't work well. Actually, is another way of saying it really doesn't work. And, and I, I think that's another thing that's different is that we are much more comfortable today talking in the way that the Bible talks. We don't feel the need to be slick um in some manner that we think will be persuasive on the basis of soft words that lure people in that's almost quasi pelagian like i certainly believe that the lord uses means but uh, i think that one of those means is the truth and that includes speaking about the truth in the way that god himself has delivered it and so 
we have continued to see growth in terms of attendance, but also baptisms. And uh, so I don't think that these shifts have been negative in terms of the impact of the purpose and the mission of the church. Uh, if anything, they've just helped us own our identity as, as a church that stands on God's word unashamedly and, and not afraid of what uh, the world will say about us if we do that. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, you know, when I think about the way our church has kind of matured, changed, trying to walk more in godliness and obedience to the scriptures, it's really interesting because one of the challenges as a leader, as a pastor, is you think back on things you said, or you think back on approaches you had, or the way you did worship, but even the clothes I wore when I preached, whatever it may be, and I look back and I'm like, oh man, like, you know, and I think that's just part of natural human development. So I don't feel a lot of like guilt or shame or anything over that. It's more just like, but I do want to share with people. I do want to explain to people, like you may have noticed that we do things differently now. And so that's part of the reason I started the podcast was to help kind of give a, a sneak peek behind the curtain, so to speak. Hey, what's going on in the culture? What's going on in even my own head? And how can I connect with other pastors who are also experiencing some of these? One of the things that's that's been helpful for me to kind of explore is thinking back uh, early 2000s, I was in, I think it was middle school. I distinctly remember being at my friend's house. His name was Grant. And he brought up this book, Blue Light Jazz by Donald Miller. And if you're a listener to the show, you've heard me talk about the book a couple of times, but the book was really impactful for for guys like me, my friend Grant, for, for a lot of people who grew up in the church, because he, he had an apologetic approach that was, uh, it was different. It was unique. And so the story goes, you know, he went on campus and uh, I think it was in, in Oregon, maybe. Um, and he set up kind of this place for people to come and, and he would hear from them. And then he would apologize to them for how the church has behaved for kind of the hypocrisy of the church. And this was, this was kind of a, a very popular strategy continues to be, I mean, you'll see this published in the New York times, Washington post by figures like David French or Russell Moore. And the approach is that, we kind of have to own uh, our sin first, and they would, of course, point to the scriptures. They would pull from, you know, you got you to gotta pull the log out of your own eye before you, you get the speck out of someone else's. And so they, they're trying to operate on a biblical principle. But to me, I'm, I'm kind of going like, I don't, I don't see that actually achieving the ends. You're trying to pragmatize the scriptures in such a way to gain an audience mm -hmm. uh, by kind of confessing you know, the, uh, even this week we saw, uh, you know, Andy Stanley's out there talking about homosexuality in the church publicly and, and how the church treats people and that kind of thing. And there's always this approach where it's like, oh, the church has been so wrong. Oh, the church. And this goes even in historical studies with things like the Crusades or other things. So how, how do you think about it? We've talked about that offline a, bit, a, a little bit, but I wanted to hear kind of what are your thoughts on that as far as the either, what are the, whether we want to call it the weaponization of confession, yeah. public confession of sin. How do you process that kind of stuff? Yeah, the weaponization of confession. What, what a great phrase. Um, you know, I guess the, 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 the guys who do that wouldn't see it as really um, a weapon. They, they probably wouldn't like that language at right. all. Uh, that's far too aggressive. Yeah, no. That's too strong. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head when you say that it is a pragmatization of, of the scriptures. So if I, if I could say that in another way, like if I was speaking to my congregation, what I would say is, the, the Lord Jesus tells us to apologize when we've done something wrong. Therefore, we ought to do it because he tells us to do it. We shouldn't do it in the hopes that some other result obtains and, and thereby mm. 
take a command of Jesus and sort of make it secondary to some other goal or end or purpose. And I think that's what many of the people that you just mentioned are in danger of doing. What 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 they're thinking is uh, something along the lines of, uh, well, the church has got a bad rap. And if if we ever want to reach people with the gospel, then we really need to um, you know clean ourselves up. And that begins by owning all of our mistakes. Now, there's a lot of problems with that. Sometimes they, number one, they will go on to um, apologize for something that I don't actually think needs to be apologized for. You know, I remember very distinctly years ago in ministry, I sat across the table from a man who was upset with the way that I'd handled something. And he said, which, which by the way, I, as a pastor for 15 years, I've handled lots of things in ways that I wish I could go back and do differently. So let me just say from the gates, I'm not perfect. I don't know anybody who thinks they are, but I don't know anybody who thinks they are. So that's just a stupid qualification. Uh, But on this occasion, I had not done anything wrong before the Lord, uh, before other brothers who I asked to evaluate my actions, my conduct, my speech, all of that. So I'm sitting across the table from this man and he starts the conversation by saying, I just want you to know that I forgive you for what you did. And I, I thought in that moment, you know, I can just say thank you. And then this conversation could go a lot smoother. Or yeah, I yeah, or I could do what I think this brother needs to hear, which was say, I don't need your forgiveness for something that was not sin. All right. Right. So my first problem with the approach that some of those people adopt is they're apologizing for some some things that are not actually sinful. And when you do that, right. um, you're actually uh, giving into the error. Um, uh, it, it sort of categorically belongs to what Joe Rigney and others have talked about, the sin of empathy, not meaning that all forms of empathy are sin, but that some forms of empathy are sin, where you kind of are empathizing with that other person's frustration about something that you did, even though what you did wasn't wrong. And God says it isn't wrong. I mean, just imagine if Jesus did that. Imagine if Jesus were preaching and he said something true and somebody came up to him and said, that really hurt my feelings. And, and Jesus said, oh, I'm sorry it hurt your feelings. And then they said, I forgive you for hurting my feelings. Is Jesus not guilty of sin? Does he need to say, I accept your forgiveness? Like, that's insane, right? So that's my right. prob- first problem. Sometimes they apologize for things that aren't really sin. Uh, the second problem is they, they seem to think that by apologizing for things, even real sins, um, that, they, that that will be the means that kind of unlocks the person's heart and makes them open and receptive to the gospel. And that kind of thinking... That way of talking is uh, just deeply at odds with uh, classic Reformed Protestantism. It just is. In fact, you mentioned Russell Moore. One of the ironies is I remember reading a critique uh, that he wrote of Tim Keller. This was early, early on, uh, early 2000s. He wrote a critique of Tim Keller called Paul Was Not Building Bridges. And it was a critique of the way that Keller tends to talk about um, Acts 17 and what Paul's doing at the Areopagus. And and the great irony is that today, sometimes the way that that, um, Russ Moore carries himself in conversations uh, on stages and conferences or writes articles. It seems like he's attempting to build bridges, not through yeah. not through intellectual conversation and worldview diagnosis and, uh, you know, the kind of thing that Keller thinks Paul's doing in Acts 17. But but actually through this kind of I'm going to apologize my way into your good graces and then you will be right. in, in a posture that's ready and willing uh, to hear me and receive me and so on. Now, and I just want to um, just want to point out. What we don't think is that your conduct doesn't matter. I don't know anybody who right. thinks that. If you act like a total jerk, you know, and, and then you say something, everybody's going to hear that and think, yeah, I don't know if I want to hear that from that guy. Uh, or, or again, if I were uh, 
if, if you saw me on my 500 pound life or is it 600 pound these days? Uh, yeah. 600. Now. Yeah. See fat inflation. It's real. So, uh, so my <laughs> 600 pound life, just give it 10 years. You heard it here first. It'll be my 700 pound life. Um, so if I were on my 700 pound life, uh, and then I wrote a book on the importance of, uh, eating in moderation, man, every word that I write in that book could be true every word, yeah. but it's going to be a little hard to hear from me. So yeah. no sane human being thinks that our conduct has zero bearing upon our actions, but there's a, a wide difference between saying you ought not be a hypocrite and saying you ought to approach people like a dog with your tail between your legs and that thereby you will win over their love, approval, acceptance, and, and place them in a posture of readiness and willingness to hear the gospel. The, the fact is, at the end of the day, Jesus was the kindest human being on the planet. But when hard words came out of his mouth, John 6 tells us that a majority of people walked away from Jesus. And I just don't think I'm going to do any better than him. I'm not going to be any kinder than him. I'm not going to be any more merciful than him. I'm not going to be more gracious than him, more wise than him, soft-spoken when needs to be soft-spoken. He's, he's going to excel every time in every category that I put him in. But when he got to the hard words of John 6, it says that the majority of those who were following him turned away. And so I just think we need that category in our minds when we think about how we want to engage other people. Uh, so do we care about our conduct? Yeah, but we do it because the Lord tells us to care about it, not because we think we can soften a non-Christian's heart uh, with some kind of preparation for the gospel through our niceness. Yeah. I think that's so true. And I think one thing you said up front uh, really sticks with me and has been a persistent theme I've been exploring theologically and biblically. I think so much of uh, my approach, whether I knew it at the time or not, was fairly antinomian in that I didn't really appreciate the law. I thought I grew up under a lot of like heavy law of pharisaical culture and Southern Baptist culture. Um, and that may be true. Like there, there, there's probably some of that there. But what I went to when I discovered that kind of the doctrines of grace was more uh, antinomian, where it's like, oh, it doesn't matter. I would read Luther and all this kind of stuff. And what what that opens the door to is a definition of sin that's that's incredibly expansive and can never be exhausted because there's no boundary. There's no uh, Bible <laughs> to define what we're asking forgiveness for or pointing out the sin. Um, and I just think, well, a lot of pastors, Christians miss the category of like, look, interpersonal offense and inter interpersonal differences, that's totally fine. Like we can relate, we can, you know, if we needlessly cause offense, you know, we, we could maybe apologize for that, I suppose. But when we start making, uh, when we start diminishing the law of God, and then we start trying to apologize for things that aren't even in the law of God, I think it does great harm to the, to oneself to the other person and to the church's public witness, because then all of a sudden we're diminishing what Christ died for uh, by apologizing for things he didn't die for. You know, like it's just, it makes it very complicated uh, in that sense, in terms of confession. A lot of another scripture that people will point to is like judgment begins at the household of God, right? And so they'll point to that scripture and say, well, judgment begins at the household of God. So therefore, uh, and it's really weird because the way that, that their equation works in their mind is like, in order to do evangelism, we have to be perfect. Um, when in fact, like, but they also weaponize it to, to, to kind of say like, well, we're not perfect. Therefore, what business do we have telling the world 
how to behave or, or what's wrong in the culture, that kind of thing. Have you seen that stuff play out as oh, well? Oh, yeah. In fact, um, I went on Glenn Scribner's podcast a number of years ago, and, and we actually were talking a good deal about, about that very text, partly because I'd had a tweet that, that went viral uh, where I was mentioning, uh, sort of in around 2020, uh, maybe 2019, late 2019, I was mentioning that I've got a friend who teaches at a public university here in town. It's a huge uh, school uh, with a very large art program one of the leading art art programs in the country. And like a lot of art programs in secular universities, it tends to attract the most progressive of the progressive. And so the things he sees are wild. They're so wild that when I wrote about them on the thread, there were people who thought that I was lying and exaggerating sure. uh, because yeah. they cannot fathom people being as wild, uh, as, as irrational, as evil uh, and wicked and so on as him. But I go on in that thread to say that I fear that as bad as all of that is, that the church might still have the capacity to do more damage to herself than, than those without. And so I basically make the case that I wonder if by hypocrisy we can do more damage than the world's hostility. And I still think that I could defend that principle from the Bible. I think that the world has thrived, the church in times and places has done okay under persecution. It has had an intensifying effect on our faith. It has a purifying effect on those who were nominal Christians, and they come to realize they're not really with us, and so therefore they they depart. You know, they leave uh, from us, and that sort of thing. So I think I could um, I think I could still make that case. However, um, there is um, an, an important sense in which I would want to qualify that today and say what I'm not saying is that the church is worse than the world. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. There's a difference between saying. Yeah. We can hurt ourselves worse than they can hurt us. I think that's true. Hmm. But that's not the same as saying that, yeah, man, we're just all sinners. And in fact, we're actually worse than the world because, you know, hmm. we ought to know better. And judgment begins with the household of God. Well, no. Uh, Luke, Jesus says in Luke 12 that the one who knows his master's will and doesn't do it is worse off than the one who doesn't know it. Sure. But there's a third option. There's the guy who knows his master's will and seeks to do it. Hmm. He actually does do it, you know. Uh, and it seems yeah. like that one gets left off for some reason. Like I'm not, I'm not entirely sure why we think the only options are failure and other kinds of failure. But right. what about all the New Testament calls to uh, uh, actual godliness and Christ-likeness and maturity and consistency? Not perfection, certainly, but uh, be, becoming a, a different man than you were 10 years ago. That ought to be the norm. And you're right. There's a kind of implicit antinomianism here that says, well, if we ever call anybody to repentance or holiness, then we're probably going to we're probably legalists and we're judgmental. And I'm saying no, because the Bible calls people to repentance and holiness. And I don't think the Bible is legalistic at <laughs> right. all. That's exactly right. Yeah, really. I mean, the, the cultural pressure, thank God and his providence, at least for me in this case, was in 2020 when I saw. Uh, a very complicated issue where you had churches issuing statements about their complicity with uh, generational sin and systemic sin. And uh, that, that was, I guess I had seen that before. And I guess I had felt that before. And there was kind of the me too movement as well that kind of put that pressure on churches to, uh, and a lot of churches either didn't address it or didn't think about it. I know I was probably busy in ministry and, and I was like, well, I know what I believe, but this one in 2020 was the first one where I was like, man, I got to figure this stuff out. 
Guys, I've got people on the left using scriptures in the Old Testament, kind of prophetic passages in one way. I've got Theonomus using them in another way. And uh, and I think it's just a really important topic to to dive into because this stuff isn't letting up in my mind. This stuff is is uh, the the world is very happy for Christians to get into a pattern of self-flagellation where they're constantly just like like you said, kind of walking with a dog with a tail between its legs. And so I think there's a there's a need uh, for strong, courageous leadership right now that that openly is is willing to acknowledge like, yeah, like the church isn't perfect, but still walks and pursues holiness and is unafraid to kind of call out idolatry and that kind of thing. One one thing that uh, that kind of touches on that is I don't know if we want to call it kind of our generation or our uh, some people will say this cultural moment, all this kind of sure. stuff. Truman, Truman talks about individual expression, uh, expressive individualism. He talks about kind of the quest to, to kind of articulate yourself and express yourself in a way that's unique to you. And part of that is, is captured in this phrase, authenticity. Yeah. And for our church, uh, it was really funny. I remember exactly where we were when we were doing kind of the typical church planner thing. What are going to be our church's values, you know? And at this point, you know, our church is really diving into that. Our elders are having great conversations about it. Uh, because back then it was like very leadershipy, you know, very much like, uh, if we're going to be a good organization, we got to have a mission, vision, values, and all that things dialed in. And then when I study history, I'm like, where was that back then? You know, not saying we can't learn today, but where was that back then? One of those values, uh, we were trying to figure out how, how is our posture either unique or, or something like that. And, you know, our people, when they come to our church, they experience that. They're like, we just appreciate your honesty. You're, you're real. You know, it feels, it feels like not only you really believe it, you really want to live it. And you're trying to represent your faith in a real way. In fact, we get that from non-Christians all the time where they'll say, I don't believe what you believe, but gosh, I so appreciate you just saying what you believe. So there is a place for that kind of truthfulness, if we want to use that word, but our church embraced the value of authenticity. And so we've, we've kind of created a culture where the idea is that you would go to a small group, you would go to this thing and you don't have to pretend or perform. You can just be who you are, all that kind of stuff. No pressure, all this. Um, and it's not that I want to dispense of the good parts about that, but I'm curious to know what you think about this kind of concept of kind of being authentic and, and being real and, and how that plays out in the church and leadership and how that, how that may prove dangerous for people in their, in their Christian life. Have, have you considered that? How does that play out in your ministry? Most definitely. And while you were talking, I looked it up. You guys have that on your website, right? Uh, yeah, your, second, yeah, your second core value is authentic. We want to be a community marked by relational authenticity. No one is perfect. We should anticipate difficulty and hardships in relating to one another, as well as the joy that comes in reconciliation. Hiding our sin and shame does nothing but destroy us personally and communally. Everyone from pastors to babies, I assume you mean baby Christians, but maybe you mean literal babies, both are true, <laughs> are in need of God's grace. So we value vulnerability in community and a disposition of vulnerability builds trust, empathy, and love for others. Uh, I also see, thanks to the Wayback Machine, that you guys had that uh, on there in 2016 as well, but it's slightly different form. The way back. Yeah. The, go the gospel <laughs> oh, is what no. saves we us got Doug and Ponder sanctifies going us. The way <laughs> Yo, the way back machine is terrifying and wonderful. Like it's wonderful yeah, when you're using it uh, against somebody else. And it's terrifying to think I have blogs 
there's so this is a true story. Um, there's a a blog that I used to write for our church like about 10, maybe 11, 12 years ago, where when we were first starting out, we had that we saw this need to do a lot of discipleship, but we didn't really have the the means to do it. So a lot kind of fell to me. And I was writing three articles a week. That's a lot. And some of them were trash. Yeah. Total trash. I was also very young. <laughs> like when I started, we were 20, 25, 26. I was 26 years old. And um, I don't know how to delete them because I, I don't have the password to that WordPress site anymore. And it's so humbling, bro. <laughs> it is so very humbling. If somebody were to Google my name after your podcast or they, they, they read an article I've written for – somebody more respectable, you know, uh, like Ligonier. Yeah. And then they're like, I wonder what else he's written. And then they find this thing. I'm like, <laughs> Oh, there it is. Um, so the way back machine doesn't even, is, is terrifying, uh, because that stuff is never really going to be gone. No, it's anyway, not. back in 2016, you guys said the gospel yeah. is what saves us and sanctifies us. We're all in a process to some degree. While no one's perfect, we desire to be a community marked by relational authenticity. So same thing. Um, I think yeah. I know what you're reaching for. Because I've heard that phrase yeah. a lot, and 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 your fuller, newer version has more words in that word cloud cluster that kind of clarify yeah. enough of what you guys are getting at uh, that I don't think you're guilty of some kind of mortal sin here, you know? Okay, great. Yeah. Not that you asked, but <laughs> if, you, if you care. Um, so here's what I think happens, right? So let's start with some things we already already know. Um, words change their meaning over time. You know, I live in the state of Virginia. And I've got some connections to um, uh, the University of Virginia here. And at the University of Virginia, we have, uh, there's a song, our fight song, and it says, um, Virginia, where all is bright and gay. Now, that was written a long time ago, like yeah, 70, right. 80, 90, 100 years ago. That word has a little different meaning today, right? Obviously. Yeah, it does. Obviously. And so um, there, there's a, a sense in which uh, we all know words change their meaning over time. I think something like that has happened with the word authentic. And so it's always worth remembering that at one point in history, authentic just meant genuine. It meant that something is what others claim that it is. Okay. Well, in our context, I think what has happened is that uh, when people use that word to talk about themselves, um, they either mean one of two things. They either mean their true self in the sense that Carl Truman talks about. Like they have looked within and they have discovered a certain set of feelings and inclinations. And then they identify with those over against all people and even aspects of reality that might set themselves against that. And some people mean that. That's my authentic self. But I think more commonly in church circles, what, what we're seeing is that word is a reaction to the hyper glossy, uh, really uh, sort of overly polished, fake and hollow uh, hypo hypocrisy and, and just goofy Sunday services that came out of the seeker-sensitive movement and the church growth movement of the late 80s through the 90s, okay? So in yeah. fact, if you I looked this up uh, uh, just uh, uh, earlier today. If you go on Google's Ingram Viewer and you look up words like fake, real, or be real with, or get real with, or be real with you, or uh, hypocrisy, judgmental. Almost all of these words saw a tremendous uptick since the early 90s. Some of them have increased almost 1,600% since like 94, wow. 95. So, so the last 20 years, um, 25 years, have seen something like an explosion 
of people reacting against uh, what they perceive to be just this terribly hollow, fake, hypocritical uh, 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 sort of persona or way of life that for better or for worse, accurately or inaccurately, at some degree, uh, was attached to big mainstream evangelicalism. And so I think when a lot right. of churches planted, yours, ours, when did you, did you guys start uh, like 2012, 20, when, when did you guys? 2011, okay. yeah. Yeah, so you're just two years after us. Um, there was certainly a desire to put some distance between us and that movement. I right. think for good reasons, we wanted to signal to people that we're not about that. Uh, you know, we're, we're, right. we're not going to be fake and gloss, glossy and over-polished. And, and, and then what comes with that is hypocrisy, right? The lying and the hiding about our sin and pretending to be something that we're not. So I think that's the, that's right. the good that the word authentic is reaching for. Here's my concern. Right. My concern is that we, there's almost a cottage industry that has grown up uh, around sort of the opposite vice of, uh, of saying, well, if all those people are over-polished, hyper-glossy, fake hypocrites, then what we're going to be is like not just honest, not just transparent, not just humble, which, which are good things, but rather almost glorying in the things that sh the Bible mm. says should be ashamed, shameful to us. Yeah. So think about some book yeah. titles with me. No Perfect People Allowed, 2007. Right. Messy Spirituality, yeah. 2007. Jesus Wants to Save Christians, 2008. I mean, that was Rob Bell. The Broken Way, <laughs> 2016. Embracing Brokenness, 2018. Nobody left out. Jesus meets us in the mess. 2020. Broken people transforming grace. Life, colon, and obsessively grateful, undone by Jesus, genuinely happy, not faking it through the hard stuff kind of devotional. 2021. Present over perfect. 2016. <laughs> Messy people, merciful God. Like, bro, you and I could write a bestseller Christian book right now. Right. <laughs> step one. We could step one. We could probably put in chat the chat thing, the AI chat. There it is. Step one, we need to get a pen name and write as as a lady. Because I think almost all those books were written as women <laughs> or by emergent dudes who are almost women anyway. All right. So that's step one. Step two is we need to come up with a title about how mm -hmm. we're embracing the messy brokenness. It could be called something like Breaking in the Broken, colon, how our messy grace of a messy God meets us in the messes and our brokenness. And it's beautiful. Right. And then um, step three would be, we use chat GPI to just copy everything. They're all saying the same thing, you know, and here's what they're yep. saying. What they're basically saying is something like this. We're all sinful and we all know it. So let's just be real about how we're big sinners and we're a big mess and praise God for his grace. And here's the thing. Yeah. I wrote an article one time, not on the site that I'm embarrassed about, right? That that's quoting Luther and his letter to his uh, to Melanchthon, right? Where he says your sins aren't big enough. Like I've used that to great effect in counseling yep. men in my church, guys who are recovering drug addicts, and they're nervous that maybe they've sinned too much for God to forgive them. And I'm able to tell them the good news. Yeah. Nah, man. In fact, yeah. your sins still aren't big enough. And they're like, what? And I'm like, you need to recognize just how massive they are. And then realize that as massive as they are, Jesus has already taken care of that. A mountain of sin. So I love that hate that it has basically done away with the whole category in the Bible of maturity, holiness, godliness, integrity, virtue. Because basically what I perceive is happening is, basically, is this. 
Because God's law is written on our hearts, Romans 2, at some level, we all feel a gap between who we are and who we ought to be. And then what hypocrisy does is it tries to close the gap with a fake persona, an over-polished, hyper-glossy, lies, uh, hiding, and you know, hypocritical way of living that says, I'm going to pretend to be better than I am and close the gap between mm. who I know I am and who I ought to be. That's hypocrisy. What I feel mm. that, uh, uh, that this word authenticity has done, it feels like what this word authenticity is doing is the opposite. It's saying we will close the gap between who we ought to be and who we really are by just glorying in who we are mm. and just saying, this is me, bro. Take it or leave it. Yeah, bro, I'm just a messy <laughs> dude. I'm a cusser. Sometimes I sleep around. Sometimes I sleep with two people at the same time, bro. That's just me, man. We're all sinners, bro. You know, like that that kind of uh, of way of closing the gap is just as problematic. Because while that person probably is in a better place to at least receive grace, like Jesus said, the hypocrites, uh, the Pharisees never saw their need for grace. Whereas the tax collectors and the prostitutes would get into the kingdom before them. So while it's true that maybe mm. the guy at the bottom of the pile who's closing the gap between who he ought to be and who he is, maybe he's better positioned to see grace because at least he's being honest about his sin. At the end of the day, it's still a horrible place to be when the Bible is full of, of, of exhortations for us to repent, to put sin to death, and to close the gap between who we are and who we ought to be. Not by just collapsing everything into this is me, this is me, I'm being real, but by by right. repenting and pursuing virtue. In other words, you want to become in your daily life, in, in become in practice who God has created and redeemed you to be. I'm not yet what I ought to be, but I press on in the language of the New Testament. I seek to put to death the old man and to put on the new man. The New Testament is just shot through with this kind of language of putting one thing to death and putting one thing away and, and turning from and growing and maturing and making progress in godliness with training and discipline being part of that. That's a healthier way, I think, to close the gap. Does all that make sense? No, it makes really good sense to me. And it, and it kind of helps me kind of think through, okay, you know, I think some of the the reason our church put it on there is because yeah i was i was raised in that church that felt hypocritical uh that church culture and some of them were and fake yeah yeah no doubt um and and one thing you know me and matt and even my wife like we don't like the fake we don't like i mean i'm gonna say this out loud and i uh, we don't prefer fake people like i, sure. I don't think anyone prefers fake nope. people but like there there honestly are a lot of church planners pastors people who are very interested in being fake. You know, you can you can have a lot of good success in the world by being fake, by kind of pretending, by putting on the worldly sense, the suburban sense is, you know, having the best house, having the best cars, having the best accoutrements, having the best aesthetic. And in the church, it becomes kind of this performance networking, uh, kind of this this weird game that people play. Uh, to try to try to build an audience or build a brand or something like that. And we're just like, we're, we're disinterested in that. Sure. Even though we care about aesthetics, even though we care about beauty, we're, we're just wildly disinterested in fakeness. And so um, one of my seminary professors, he put it this way, pastors should, should show that they're human, 
pastors should show that they're human. They should unzip enough to where people can see your heart, but you don't unzip too far because then people are going to see things they're not supposed to see. <laughs> and so there's this, a, there's this sense of... <laughs> I'm just picturing a man wearing a deep V and he just keeps unzipping. So look, here, here's my heart, but you don't want to unzip too much because then they're going to see parts... Right. That's a, um, what. It, thank you for that image. That's, it will stay with me forever. You're, you're welcome. Um, but I think, you know, when I look back, I maybe I should take the sermons offline. I don't know. But when I look back at some of my early preaching, it was so like it was hungry for relational connection. I think that's where a lot of this stems from. Our our conviction at our church is that uh, relationships are are really key to understanding the gospel and the Bible and kind of uh, relational restoration and redemption. And what I was searching for in a lot of that, and I think a lot of people are searching and being real, being honest, like this, this is me, is what they're looking for is like a, a person that will just receive them for who they are. They're looking for that radical acceptance. And I think that's just a dangerous game to play. Without a doubt. Um, and we start celebrating and like you said, lording and things that aren't, aren't uh, biblical. And you start as a pastor, you start, uh, you, you, you lose any sense of uh, discretion, propriety, uh, holiness, uh, the place of certain things in the pulpit. In fact, I actually had a funny conversation recently in the last few years because they're like, Chase, you're different, not in the pulpit, like when we're, when we're grabbing a beer or something, than you are in the pulpit. And they view that as widely problematic. They're like, you know, why, why do you have a certain demeanor disposition? Not that it's like two different people, like I'm a schizophrenic, but like, there's just a different sense of propriety you carry. And I'm like, well, I'm trying to grow in like, what's appropriate to share with like my child versus my wife or anything like that. There is a sense in which I carry myself differently. Um, one thing we've dispensed of that we used to believe with that no perfect people allowed kind of attitude that we probably used to have is like, man, like, uh, sometimes, um, the Christian life requires, I wouldn't call it pretending or performing. I mean, we could call it that, but like you do have to put in the work, even when you don't feel like it, it with any good marriage, yep. this is the same thing. You, you start loving out of, uh, out of the way you pattern your life yep. and the, the, the virtues you're cultivating often get formed, uh, by, doing the right thing, even when you don't feel like it. And that's what's missing in a lot well, of this conversation. That's exactly right. Take, take a really common example that pastors uh, certainly are, are going to be highly attuned to, but a lot, a lot of uh, members in our congregations as well. You're not a hypocrite if you do something that God says you ought to do when you don't feel like it. That's, I think, the, one of the dangers of the, the language of authenticity yeah. here is that some people have now mis, misdefined, misdiagnosed, mislabeled as, uh, as hip hypocrisy, as being doing something other than what you feel. Now, think about that Pandora's box, right? right? Well, I feel like a woman, yeah. even though I was born with a Y chromosome and, and boy parts that people will see if I unzip, you know, past my heart. And keep unzipping. Um, so, so right. <laughs> I, I, I am a man, regardless of what I feel like. And so that, right. the problem is that when authenticity gets defined as doing only what you feel and never violating those, then you're really putting your feelings and your emotions and whatever else we want to put into that kind of vague and nebulously defined term. You're putting that on the seat, uh, the seat of control of your life and saying that you are what you feel. 
which my gosh, what a, what an emotional roller coaster identity that is. That's terrifying. And that's exactly where so many people it are. Is. And then, and then they hear yep. the new Testament, the old Testament too, certainly, but Jesus, especially condemning hypocrisy. And they read into that Jesus's condemnation yes. of doing anything contrary to your desires. And so what, what you're highlighting is the need for the church uh, to carve out space that says, no, no, no. Hypocrisy is not about doing something different than what you desire, right? Hypocrisy is actually when you do the opposite of what you say on purpose, on purpose, right? Yes. In, in other words, it's not even enough just to say, well, hypocrisy, what's the old way of, of defining it? The pop way I grew up hearing it was saying one thing and doing another. Well, I'm not even sure doing that another. goes far yeah. enough because – who among us doesn't say one thing and do another because we are sinners? Like I'll tell people, right. you ought to uh, let no uncorrupting speech come out of your mouth. And then right. maybe I say something that was corrupting speech and I have to apologize. Was I being a hypocrite in that moment? Eh, probably not the best word. Was I sinning? Sure. Now, I would be a hypocrite yeah. if I constantly told everybody that I have a no corrupting speech ministries incorporated international USA, whatever. And I, I all day, every day worked, uh, uh, more swear words into my speech and more vulgar jokes than anybody you've ever met. I clearly have no intention to be who I'm projecting. That's not the, that's not what we're talking about, right. but, but all of this shows the need for us to retain, I think the good stuff that churches, including yours, are reaching for when you're using the word authenticity while rejecting uh, a word that maybe has become problematic for all the reasons that we're talking about. And so when I think about what you guys were reaching for based on the language in your website, it sounds like you're reaching for, we hate hypocrisy and praise God for that. Jesus hates hypocrisy even more than we do. He hates it. It's like the third yeah. commandment in large part, I, I think Peter Lightheart is right. The third commandment in large part was given to govern the lives of God's people so they wouldn't be hypocrites. That's what it means to take the name of the mm -hmm. Lord in vain. It doesn't just mean to say it when you stub your toe. Like, I mean, that's obviously right. ruled out, but not because of the third commandment. That's ruled out because that that's uh, 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 irreverent in the same way that if you said your wife's name every time you busted your knuckle on a doorframe, she would be like, why is my name a swear word to you? What? Yeah, what? <laughs> well, so don't do that. That's dumb and wrong, obviously. That's not what we're talking about. What are we talk? What we are talking about is the kind of person who says, "Yeah, I belong to I belong to the Lord. I I seek to live according to His ways," and then you go out and deliberately do the opposite with no intention of no effort, no aim to be who God calls you to be. That's the hypocrite, and so we want to retain the rejection of that kind of person who's just putting on a persona that we all know is wrong, it's not real, it doesn't accurately represent who they are, and it, as you said, it's fake, and it is uh, profoundly problematic because what comes with it is lying and hiding and this vicious cycle of shame. That sucks. We want to reject that kind of hypocrisy. But maybe better words are, instead of words like authentic and even words like real, which is just an older form of the same attempt to reach for this, we want to talk about words like honesty transparency, yeah. humility, right? So I can be humble. That's a much better word, I think, than authenticity, where I can say I can be humble about the fact that though I am a follower of Jesus and I strive to obey what he says, we still, I still fall short of what he calls me to do. And I'm not glorying in that, which is why the word humility captures the honesty element about sin and falling short, 
but it does it in such a way where nobody who's who's saying I fall short and is actually humble about it is glorying in their weaknesses and their brokenness and all the other words, the buzzwords that we like to use. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's a great word. And the, uh, another word that comes to mind for me is like integrity. Sure. Walking in integrity is walking in, uh, in that kind of way as well. Um, well, this has been really helpful. I wanted to give our listeners a chance just to get a little little uh, snippet on the work being done at Grimke, because obviously we've benefited from it personally in our ministry here in Boulder County. Um, kind of share with our listeners, people who are listening today, what's Grimke about? Uh, what are you excited about? and uh, maybe how they can get more information about it. Yeah. Um, we started our school because we, we had a need uh, that we, we wanted to, to fill, and we were looking around and, and didn't see uh, anybody who was quite, quite scratching that itch, filling that need. And uh, the basic need was this. We saw a need for pastors to be the primary train, trainers and equippers of pastors. If you've ever talked with somebody who served as a pastor for a long time, uh, versus somebody who's never served as a pastor for a long time. Those two men, if they're both professors, are going to talk very differently. Everybody who's ever been to seminary yeah. knows this. Uh, you can feel it even on the first day of class. There's just a different way uh, that a man who has, has read deeply and studied uh, for a long time, but then has found a way of communicating that to folks who haven't read it deeply, haven't read that they're, they're just, inter they're just pursuing different projects. One of them is sort of pursuing theology in the academy for the academy by the academy and the other one pursues theology in the church and for the church and by means of the church for the sake of the people of god and i think there's a lot of schools out there that would say that that that's their goal they're like that's what i want to do but then they kind of unwittingly undermine that by some of the the professors they employ and some of the systems that they set up and other things that they promote that unwittingly undermine their own stated goals. So they might say we're for the church or whatever the mottos are these days, but then yeah. you can look at the fruit and, and sort of see, is, is that, is that really true? And so in our school, uh, every single professor is somebody who's currently serving as a pastor, uh, has been a pastor for over a decade, or in some cases served as a pastor for many decades. And we do that on purpose because it just changes the whole, uh, uh atmosphere of the teaching. Um, we offer, uh, a modified residential format where instead of guys having to move to Richmond, uh, they stay where they are. They come to campus twice a semester for these three little uh, three days uh, intensives and then are able to stay home, stay plugged in with their church. And more importantly, we require everybody who is part of our school to be in some kind of mentorship or internship or residency program with the pastors that they have on staff. We wanted to bring that pastor into the conversation and make sure that these students were studying from him, learning from him, sitting under him and gaining um, not just um, insight from him, but seeing how what he's learning in class is already being applied in his church or can be uh, applied there. And so uh, those are just some of the ways that it's different. You can get um, more information about our, our degree and the I mean, our, our school, the various degree programs that we have on our website. You just go to Grimkey.org uh, and you can read more about some of the faculty involved uh, as well as other formats and that sort of thing. But um, it's been amazing. As somebody who's been part of seminary three times and Bible college once, I know that I'm biased. So in my utterly biased opinion, I will say this. <laughs> the kinds of conversations that happen in the classroom and in the hallways and in the time that we hang out during lunch and the evenings and that sort of thing, they're just different. They're markedly different. Something's different about having an exclusive focus on pastors. Uh, so it's only men who come to the school for pastoral training 
from men who are serving as pastors, and that just has a, a thoroughly different feel. It's really something you kind of have to see to believe or experience for yourself, and, and it's an utter joy for me to be part of it as a professor there. That's great. Yeah. One day I need to get out there. Uh, I keep getting a couple invites to come out, but I, I really need to make a trip out there. Yeah, cause, we love that. Um, it sounds sounds like God is doing really great things. Um, if people want to hear or or hear from you, hear more of your content, read more of your content, um, what's a couple of places you would point them to to kind of keep track? I'm going to obviously put your uh, link to your Twitter, a link to your church, a link to Grimkey. What what are some other places besides that? Yeah, those are those are the common ones. I probably hang out on Twitter more than is good for my soul, but um, that's probably true for most people. Uh, uh, I, I write for lots of different organizations, kind of piecemeal here and there, and I don't I don't really have like a personal website where that's all in one place. So uh, sure, but I most of my writing these days will go for uh, toward my school's uh, journal. So Grimkey started a theological journal. Uh, called Sola Ecclesia. It was it's sort of like the sixth assumed sola of the Reformation, and we want to bring that church centrality back uh, uh, into the discussion. So a lot of my writing there uh, would be an easy place for them to keep up with uh, some of the things that I've written uh, over the years or that I'm writing more currently, uh, if they're interested in following that. That's great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today, Doug. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, if you're a listener and you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you share with somebody. I'm going to share it with my pastor friends, my elders at the well. I'm going to share it with other people as well. So share it with somebody. Give it a great rating. Um, that helps other people find the content. Subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're using. And then if you would, click that Patreon link and, and um, contribute and sign up for any dollar amount. You can help me by bringing great content. And you can also tell me what you want to hear. Uh, I put my Patreons at kind of the top of the list as far as content I want to deliver. And so I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to partner with you in that way. And you can help me keep bringing great content to you. Um, we're going to have some great guests coming up talking about a variety of matters, including the Academy, uh, some books on the Sabbath, all sorts of stuff coming out. So sign up on the Patreon and we will see you next time.